If you're new to our church, we've been going chronologically through the Bible. We've been moving through it in pretty big steps. But in 31 weeks spread across this year, we've moved from Genesis, and now we find ourselves in the books of Kings, and we also are looking into the lives of some of the prophets. How does it all fit together? The first chapters of Genesis tell us of a God who spoke the universe into existence and who made mankind the crown of his creation. For a very short time, all was literally well. All was happy in the universe. Man and woman were rightly related to God. And something that has never occurred again, they were perfectly, happily united in marriage. Then sin entered into the world, but God didn't give up. In Genesis chapter 12, he reached down by grace and chose one man, promising to make of him a man with no children, a great nation. And he said to Abraham, from you, I will bless all the tribes, clans, peoples, every people group on earth is going to be blessed through your family. As this Bible continues to unfold, we'll learn soon enough that that is Jesus. But for now, God is building a nation. And using ceremonies and cultural symbols from their time, he entered into covenant with them. He chose them above all the nations of the world, not because of their merit, but purely by his grace to make promises and assurances and offer blessings to them he offered to no one else, all on the way to reaching the whole world through Jesus. But as we've been reading in these last few weeks, and it's been tough to teach some of these Bible passages because if you're honest with what the Bible says and you're honest with what that looked like in real life, these are dark passages. Men go very far from God. They destroy themselves in countless different ways. Families are torn apart. God himself is forsaken and disappointed. And then into this storm of faithlessness and disloyalty and betrayal, God begins to send his messengers. They're known in the Bible as prophets, and there is a large section in the Old Testament dedicated to the writings of the prophets that most people avoid and don't know much what to do with. You need to understand, these were actual men living in these troubled, difficult, dark, spiritual times who were speak, standing for God and speaking for God, calling people back to him. Today, I have a challenging assignment because we're going to open our Bibles in one of what Bible students call the minor prophets. Their message is not minor. Generally speaking, the length of the book is. I'm opening today in the book of Hosea. Will you go there with me, please? If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you're welcome to use uh, one near you. There should be in the pews. They look like this. And to be exact, if you're using this Bible, I'm in page 751. Don't look for that page number. If you brought your own Bible, it will almost certainly not coincide. But if you need a Bible, we're looking at the book of Hosea. Hosea spoke to both kingdoms, primarily to the rebel kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes of the north that had gone so far away from God. We don't know much about him, but his story is one of the great love stories of the entire world. The Bible is not so much a book as it is a library that tells a single story of God's redemptive love. 
But Hosea is a difficult book because it uses frank and frankly graphic language to portray what was happening in the life of a prophet who must have been young. His ministry spans several different kings and he prophesied apparently for more than four decades. But Hosea was a man who very early in his marriage got up every day with a broken heart because he had a difficult ministry assignment. God made Hosea a living object lesson. His domestic life, the life that he had with his wife and his children, were a living example of what was happening in Israel of its day. We don't know much about Hosea, but he must have been one of the few pure-hearted people in Israel. He must have had genuine faith in God because God interrupted his life by speaking to him and telling him not only to deliver a message, but to live a life that would portray what was happening between the people God had chosen and God himself. So Hosea married a woman named Gomer. And like all men, he brought a life of hope into that marriage. I've officiated too many weddings now to remember. I used to pride myself that none of the weddings I had officiated had ever ended in divorce. I can't say that anymore. Sometimes they do. But no one walks down the center aisle of a church believing that they will end it. They don't foresee anger. They don't foresee betrayal. They don't foresee screaming in the middle of the night. They don't foresee saying things to each other like, lower your voice, the children will hear us. And Hosea certainly didn't foresee adultery. One of the reasons the book of Hosea is avoided is because in its very first few verses, God says to Hosea, marry this woman and know this, when you marry her, she will be a woman marked by prostitution. The Bible translation you're using uses a word so old-fashioned and so stark that it's hardly ever mentioned anymore. Hosea, it says in verse 2, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now you know why pastors avoid the book of Hosea. It's hard to read that word out loud. What's happening here? God is making Hosea a living example of what's happening in God's own heart. And how the people he has chosen at ultimate cost to himself have walked away and forsaken him. So the first three chapters of 14 chapters of Hosea are biographical. They tell you in the spare, lean style of Hebrew storytelling what was going on in Hosea's life. You have these little windows into his domestic existence, and it's not pretty. He married, apparently, a woman who was a product of her own culture and her own time. When Hosea spoke to both kingdoms, they were enjoying financial prosperity, and people were thinking that because they were prospering materially, everything they were doing must be pleasing to the Lord. They didn't know that their enemy Assyria would soon be strengthened. And the relative peace and enjoyment that they had had would soon go away and they would soon have a relentless, cruel enemy who would crush them. For a time, though, all was well. 
And when all was well, and this generally happens in the lives of people, blessings ironically tend to make people's hearts drift from God rather than run toward God. They went very far away from him. And they rebuilt altars on the high places. And they made idols and they baked cakes and they did all sorts of little pagan things to bring handcrafted goods to have all kinds of pagan worship in the hills, inviting the blessing of these false gods that they loved. And every time the harvest came in, they thought it was the work of Baal, the false god of fertility in their day. So God gave a prophet a difficult assignment. He said, marry a woman, Hosea, who will be unfaithful to you. And they began to have children. Verse 3, he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. Now, they may, that may not mean much to you and me, but if you look through your Old Testament history, it was in Jezreel that wicked King Jezebel was thrown from a balcony and had her blood lapped up by dogs. It was in Jezreel, in other words, that a great slaughter occurred to bring to an end the worst kind of idolatry in the history of Israel. Dr. Haddon Robinson, to whom I owe much in understanding this passage and shaping this sermon, said this would be like naming one of your naming a Jewish child Dachau, one of the German killing camps. Jezreel was one of the low points in, nation, in the nation's history. So every time Hosea called the name of his firstborn son in the market, he reminded himself, that boy, and the people around them of a terrible time in their history. But they had more children. Verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. It's a terrible name to give a little girl. And if you read Hosea 4 through 14, you're going to see God alternate passages of judgment and anger with expressions of deep hope and wooing and loving and saying, but I love them and I will win them back. And if you're ever talking to a broken-hearted friend, as I have more times than I'd like to admit, when he discovers adultery in the sanctity of his marriage, that's exactly what a jilted husband, what a betrayed wife sounds like. By moments, there's anger and hurt and a desire for justice. And by others, they say, I love them. I want them back at any cost. I'll bring them back. I'll forgive them all if they will only come home. And it's hard to read God speaking in his own voice about this sort of thing. And Hosea, the, the actual living prophet who's living all through this, his hopes are being progressively dashed. Because maybe like me, you've known a family whose marriage was falling apart and they decide together to have a baby to hope that that little baby can get his arms around their two hearts and bring them together. It's not happening with Hosea. Verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people and I am not your God. That's judgment. Listen to mercy. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Two verses side by side expressing the depths of God's heart 
Call this child no kin of mine. Call this child not my child because my people have walked away from me. They behave like they don't know me, but I will win them back. And I will call them my children again, and they will be, just as I promised Abraham, as numerous as, as, numerous as the sand on the seashore. What is going on here? Why is this in the Bible? Why did God do this to a man? It's going to get much, much worse before it gets better. But these 14 chapters, the life of Hosea and the things he wrote from the voice of God are all about the love that God has for the people he's chosen and he intends to forgive. In other words, if we step from the dust of thousands of years ago into the present day, this is a picture of the love of God that that he has for you. And the first thing I learn about this love in the book of Hosea is just how wildly undignified it is. Real love is undignified. Ask ask the parent of any two-year-old just how undignified love can be. World religions struggle with this portrait of God. Islam specifically has no room for a God that yearns and bleeds and suffers. The Quran explicitly denies that Jesus died on the cross because this idea of an undignified God who humbles himself, a God who stoops to love and to serve and to pursue and to get down in the muck of real life while people have ruined their existence, to love them back to himself and give them a clean, not only forgiven, but cleansed heart. Most people don't like to think of God that way. But God is undignified. Let me give you two examples of many in the Bible. In Genesis 15, there's another strange passage that Bible teachers often avoid because there it portrays God telling Abraham to take animals and slaughter them and to cut them down the middle and to put the halves of each each half of that slaughtered animal as posts to make a bloody path. You read that and go, what in the world is going on? In the ancient world, when people took very serious vows, you could think of it as a blood covenant. Two men would promise something to each other and they would slaughter animals in that way to make an aisle of bloody carcasses and they would walk together through them as a symbol to themselves and to those observing, if I go back on my word to you, I hope that this is what happens to me. May I be slaughtered and torn in two if I ever walk back from the promise I'm making to you today. So as Abraham is making this sacrifice in his ancient Near Eastern mind, he knows exactly what's going on. He's going to walk the bloody path. He's going to commit himself to God at the risk and the expense of his own life. But then something extraordinary happens. God puts Abraham to sleep and Abraham sees a a vision of fire, a symbol of God, going through the bloody path alone. Now again, it's a lot to translate, but what God is saying in that culture is... I stake my life. I stake my reputation. May I be torn in two if, Abraham, I fail in keeping my promises to you. He's that kind of undignified God. No ancient king, no current president would make that kind of promise to someone he had chosen merely by his grace, but God does. And thousands of years later, Jesus would tell a much more familiar and much more beloved story that is just as undignified. 
He would speak of a wealthy man who had two sons. And one day the youngest son came to the father and essentially said, Dad, I wish you were dead. I'm tired of waiting for you to die. Would you please give me the inheritance now? And shockingly, the father does. He divides the fortune between his two boys. And the youngest son cashes out and moves far away and destroys his wealth and his reputation, destroys his very health, pursuing every wicked pleasure he can. Jesus said it got so bad in this parable that he told that the young boy ended up in a pig pen. Tough place for anybody to be, a very tough place for an observant Jewish boy to be. And he grew so hungry that he wished he could eat some of the indigestible food that was served to the pigs. But not even a passerby would offer him a crumb of bread. He was beyond homeless. He was despised. And in all that filth, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said he came to himself. And he thought to himself, what am I doing here? My father's slaves have a better life than this. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go back home and I'm going to tell my father. And he rehearses his words. He says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please make me one of your slaves. But Jesus says, and this is the undignified part. The boy is limping home with the stench of filth and sin all over him. And the father sees him from a great distance. And tucks his robe into his belt and he does the most undignified thing a man in the ancient world and a landowner could do. He runs toward his boy and the King James Bible says he fell on his neck. He didn't just come close, he tackled him. The father got some of that filth and some of that stench on him and the boy started his confession to beg his father's forgiveness. But his father cut him off and said, let's celebrate. Bring him shoes. Bring him a colored robe. Give him the signet ring that conducts family business. Kill the fatted calf because my son was dead and he's back, he's alive. We're celebrating. A contemporary missionary told that same story in modern times to an ancient nomadic tribe in the Near East. And when he was telling the story, they were shocked and he could tell he had lost them and they had disconnected with the story. And he said, what's going on? He said, Fathers in our culture do not run, they wait. But ours is a God who runs toward the wayward. He runs toward the rebel. He stoops and he embraces and he loves and he forgives. His love is entirely undignified and that's what Hosea is living through. His love is also jealous for us. Now, I say the word jealous, and very few of you initially have any kind of good concept of that word. I mean, our whole culture of consumer marketing is built on jealousy, where we try to keep up with the Joneses and we want what they have. And between envy and jealousy, a lot of us live tortured lives. I'm talking to you about something different. God isn't jealous of us. He's jealous for us. What's the difference? The difference is, if you're a married man and you discover that another man is trying to make advances towards your wife and trying to win her affection, you grow angry. You speak up. You move toward her. I was blessed to marry a beautiful, beautiful girl. 
And what that means is, from the earliest days of our dating relationship, then and occasionally now, she has other offers. Guys will cozy up and not realize that she's attached. And they'll say something that to my ears sound just a little bit flirtatious and just a little bit inappropriate. And invariably, any time that happens, I took about three big steps, stand up as straight as I can, put my arm around her shoulder and say, Hey, baby. And then I look at him in a meaningful way saying, you may whip me, but we will fight if this goes any further. What's happening there? I'm being jealous for her. When we were starving college students, we went to the garment district to buy me a cheap suit because that's all they sell down there, at least in those days. And we had a very obsequious salesman who continually told me how well put together I was. And shoulders like Schwarzenegger, he would say. That's a little weird because I've never been that much. But he really seemed impressed by me. And on the way way back to our college in San Dimas, I said to her, You know, I really wish I would have had this thing altered. It's just a pain to go find a tailor. And she said, Well, he said he'd do it for ten bucks. And I said, well, I missed that. And I started to turn the car around, and she started protesting that we shouldn't go back. And I said, you need to understand. If you've met her, you think more of me just because you met her. I mean, she's that, she's that impressive. She's that good, okay? I told the, guy, the pastors in Texas, I wish you could meet my wife. You'd think so much more of me if you could meet her. <laughs> And she's very sweet, and she's very wise, and she can be very indirect. She doesn't fuss, and she, in a dozen different ways, said, I don't want to go back to that shop. And I dug, and I dug, and I dug, and finally it came out that the guy who's admiring and complimenting me has actually given her his card with his phone number, and it said something on the back, like, at such and such a time, at such and such a place, let's party. Well... It was by God's grace and my wife's wisdom that I stayed out of jail that afternoon. (laughs) And I said things to him on the phone that no one should ever say to another person. What's going on there? I'm jealous for her. I love her. My heart belongs to her. I think, I believe, and I hope I would have the courage to gladly die for her. And the God you meet in the book of Hosea is a jealous God. He said in another part of scripture, my name is jealousy. I have zeal for you. I want your undivided attention. I want your loyalty. I want your love. Look over to chapter 2. Verse 6. These are the words of a jealous person. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. Because she has played fast and loose, because she is behaving like a prostitute, because she is seeking love from other gods, I'm going to try to stand between that. I'm going to try to keep her from that. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. You see, everyone who commits adultery does it because they think their life will be better. 
No one ever says, I'm walking away from my marriage vows because I want to ruin my life. They think life will be better. That's what Israel is doing up on those high hills. That's what those idols, that's what those offerings, that's what that mixed worship is all about. They think their life can be better without God. And God has jealousy for them. And he portrays himself as someone putting a great hedge of thorns between Israel and her idols so that she will no longer pursue them. And in the verses that follow, as I look into this little window in Hosea's home, it must have gotten very difficult indeed. Because from the language he uses next, there must have been a time when his wife left him. And here he is with three little children. And a thin story of why mom isn't home. Modern day preachers and ancient prophets. Anybody who stands with God's word open and dares has the honor of speaking for him. People always talk about that man. And the buzz in Hosea's neighborhood is, did you hear the prophet's wife left him? Guess he should have paid more attention at home. Guess he should have stopped preaching to us and tended to his wife. Maybe he couldn't pay the bills. Maybe she'll be happier. And Hosea's heart is broken. In the verses I'm going to read to you next, all I can see there is a portrait of a man who loves his wife so much that though she is far from him, he loves her still. And as her life begins to degrade and she begins to suffer, And she begins to lack. He continually sends money after her. And it's hard to imagine a greater humiliation than continuing to financially support your wife while she gives her love to another man. Verse 8. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold. God speaks which they used for Baal. Baal is the ancient name of the false gods of the nations around them. God is saying something heartbreaking here that it was apparently lived out in the life of his actual physical grown man prophet. I've given Israel everything as Hosea may have sent money after his wayward wife and they didn't know that the reason they sustained life and enjoyed all those things, it wasn't the false gods, it was them. And they turned around and used what I gave them and gave their heart to another. You say, well, this just sounds so distant and so far removed from our time. Well, is it really? Let's be honest and humble before the Bible. Let's be honest to God, literally. Hasn't God given us everything that we enjoy? The three breaths you've taken in the space of that silence, wasn't that a gift from God? The life you lead, the family you have, the job you enjoy, every happy moment of your life, that's a gift from God to you. Now, what do I so often do with those gifts? I take them and with barely a thought for him, I busy myself in using his gifts to do what I want. This is why Moses told Israel when the covenant was established, Israel, your God is one. 
Love him with all your heart and soul and strength. And Jesus would come later and say that all the commandments are summed up with the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It really is all about loving him. And all these gifts, everything I've ever enjoyed, including the wife I've mentioned and the boys I have and my relationship with you and every single good thing, that is given by God, by his grace, because without me deserving it, he loves me. And the same is true for you. And yet my heart is continually called by other gods, other attractions, other pleasures. And when I choose against God, it's because I'm unfaithful to him in a moment of madness thinking, if I do my own thing, I can do better. And his is an undignified love that is jealous for us. And the best, the best part of God's love comes from the darkest part of Hosea's story. It's not just undignified. It's not just jealous for us. It is also a redemptive love. It is a love that pays the cost that is necessary to bring the wayward person that he loves back to himself. Look at Hosea 3 verse 1. And the Lord said to me, this is Hosea speaking, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. That's part of their worship. So I, remember I told you when the narrative slows down, pay attention because the author's trying to get you to notice something? Look carefully. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lefek of barley. Not I bought for her. I bought her. What's going on here? In its lean, quick style, Hebrew storytelling spares you the worst of this woman's life. There must have been a time when her lovers turned her back, their back on her. She must have fallen into the clutches of a man who wanted her only for the pleasure she could afford him and would do nothing for her to protect her and shield her from the harsh ancient world. And when he says, I bought her and he names the price, that money put together, that money and that grain put together is the price of a dead slave. It's what you would pay in restitution if another man's slave was accidentally killed and it was your fault. What had happened to this poor woman as her life had been so degraded, she had fallen so far that she ended up on an auction block in a slave market. In the ancient world, most every town held at least one auction a year, sometimes many a year. And it was such a degrading, low thing that we're told of some instances where those who were being auctioned off were stripped naked. And you might be standing there completely exposed in the heart of the community who watched you grow up. And the neighborhood gossip changed for the worse. It's not only the prophet's wife has left him. It's the prophet's wife is in a really bad way. The prophet's wife is being mistreated by her lovers. The prophet's, the prophet's men want nothing to do with her now. And the prophet's wife has become a slave. She's for sale down in the square. Imagine her surprise. Imagine the expression on her face from... 
the moment from looking down in shame, she heard a familiar voice from years ago that had once pleaded with her and with tears in the voice begged her not to leave, saying that he would pay. And the bidding went up and went up and went up until Hosea paid all that it took, this meager price, to buy his wife back. And I can imagine him cutting through the crowd, running toward her with a cloak that he had doubtless prepared to put it over her, to shield her from the catcalls and the derision and the contempt of the community, and saying to her, honey, we're going home. That's the story of Hosea, and God told you why. When you were faithless to him, when you weren't looking for him, he loved you like that. And then the biographical part of Hosea's story fades from the narrative, and the chapters that close the book of Hosea alternate between hope and judgment, mercy and anger. And God says, I'm going to take her out into the desert and the place that we once called trouble will be, a, will be a door of hope. I'm going to win her back. And the book of Hosea closes with these words. Will you look with me to the last chapter? Hosea 14. Listen to a lovelorn, brokenhearted, undignified, jealous for us, redemptive God pleading for his people to return. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words, like the prodigal did, remember? Think carefully of what you will say in repentance. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls. In other words, we will return to our community worship. We will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. God speaks now. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall not take, he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, it's another word for Israel. What have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. And here's the invitation. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. How great is God's love? One day, thousands of years later, men would take the trees that God had made and go down into mines to extract the metals he had placed deep in the heart of the earth, and from the tree they would fashion a cross. From metal they would fashion spikes. And when the cross and the spikes were ready, they would lay the Son of God down on the cross, and he would lay down his life. He would willingly die, exposed like a slave and a condemned man. He would die for my sin and for yours. This is our God. There's no one like him. He is undignified and unashamed in his love for us. 
He is holiness. He burns with justice and righteousness. But his love is so great that he pays the cost of his own holiness and suffers the harm, suffers harm to himself to keep the promises he graciously made us. Your hope is not found in anything that Orange County or your life or some college or your job or anything else on earth could ever offer you. Those things, those earthly achievements are gifts from God and you fashion them with the hands he gave you. Please do not bow down and say, you're the center of my existence. You're my God. This love-lorn, broken-hearted story ends with an open invitation to the reader to return to God because what God is doing, Hosea, and all of Scripture tells us, is faithfully pursuing us in love, waiting for us to come home to Him. There's an old hymn we used to sing in this church. Sometimes we still do. It says, Sinner, come home. There's two ditches on the side of truth. One ditch is, I haven't done anything wrong to deserve this kind of sacrifice. God doesn't need to love me like this. Who ever asked him to sacrifice himself for me that way? I didn't know about it. I don't need it. You're wrong. The life of his son is the only thing that will cleanse your conscience and give you a new heart and take you safely home back to him. No religion, no church, no guru, no guide, no Christian pastor, no one on earth can save you but Jesus. So one ditch will tell you, you'll admire this love from afar, thinking that it's extravagant and overdone and unnecessary, at least in your case. You're wrong. You need to be loved like this, and it's only love like this that can save you. The other ditch is where a lot of people live, I'm convinced. They have besetting sins. They have a double life. They have an entirely different heart, except from those brief times when they're stirred in worship and they're with other people that encourage them to be at their best. But they know in their heart, in their inner core, all is not right. And those people are wondering, because of the wicked things that are in their thoughts and they're in their past, could God ever love and forgive me? Yes. See him as a lovelorn, broken-hearted husband with tears in his eyes, broken, buying back a wife from slavery that embarrassed him and shamed him. He wants her home. He wants there to be hope. He wants there to be love between them. That's what he wants with you. He wants your undivided heart and loyalty. He wants you to rest in that love and stop trying to save yourself. And he doesn't want you for a moment to think that anything you've done can keep you from him because he loves you that much. He is pursuing us even today, waiting for us to come home to him. I invite you to do so now. Would you pray with me, please? Let me look again at those ditches. Maybe you don't think you need to be loved this way. You do. It's the only thing that can save you. My invitation to you is to be humble in your heart and say, God, you alone can save me. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. I claim you. I welcome you as my Savior. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm coming home to you. Please forgive me. And more likely, since all of you chose to come to a public worship service, more likely there's more people here who think they've gone too far this weekend. That same shameful thing that keeps dragging you down, it's done it so much that you're desensitized and you're a little numb to God's love and you think that it must be for others, but it's not for you. 
You're wrong. He loves you that way, sacrificially, embarrassingly, with tremendous indignity and embarrassment to himself at the cost of the life of his own son. He loves you that way. Please, for his sake, for your sake, come home to him. If you would, just pray in your heart. He's listening. He's a real person. You can't see him, but he's real and he made you. Say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. Cleanse my heart and unite it in loyalty towards you. I'm sorry for being unfaithful. Thank you for being faithful yourself. Forgive me. I'm coming home. You love me, so I'm coming home. If you'll turn toward him, we'd love to know about that. That's one function of that guest card. If you'll let us know how God is working in your life, what decisions you've made, what you need next to follow him. You'll have people here who understand your joys and your sorrows. And we'll pray for you. And we'll keep pointing you to Jesus who alone can save you. If you're making a decision today, let us know that on that card. Lord, as people turn towards you and think about their own lives and the wreckage that sin has caused in them, reassure us in your love. Speak tenderly to us and draw us home. Thank you, God, for faithfully pursuing the faithless so that we can be safe at home. Rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen. for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Cross Point, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.